Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. Let me invite you to open a Bible to the book of Job. This morning we're going to be reading verse 1 all the way through verse 23 of Job 31. So Job 31. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad you are. Uh, Our normal pattern for preaching is book by book, expositional, trying to find the main point of a passage and then making that the main point of the sermon and then exposing that for our hearts. That is the typical pattern. But we begin each year by highlighting some things that we think need to be highlighted and give them a biblical address, and one of those things is the sanctity of human life. And so again, this morning, that's what we're going to be focusing on from Job chapter 31. So if you're there, you can begin reading in verse 1. Job writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, Let me be weighed in a just balance, and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way, and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another. And let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon. And it would burn to the root all my increase. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up. When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? And then we'll focus here on verse 15 in a little bit. Verse 15, did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it. For from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb 
I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God and I could not have faced His majesty. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we do stand in great need as we come to Your Word. It's not just our minds that we want to be filled with truth, it's our hearts. But that's Your work. And so we look to You, our Sovereign Lord, that by Your sovereign mercy and grace, You would change hearts this morning by the truth. Oh, help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. And when it comes to the battle over the sanctity of human life, particularly in the womb, we now have a vast portfolio of images, from the downright disturbing on the one side of things to the truly remarkable on the other. We see these images and we can pretty much forget words because they essentially leave us speechless. But are we listening? Are we listening acutely? to their message. I have a fear in my own life that as I scan over the passing years, the shriek of actual injustice becomes little more than white noise to my heart. It's to allow self-involvement amid the volume of life and culture and all these kinds of things to make me tone deaf to the Word of God and to practical deeds of righteousness. And so... Speaking of a thousand words, before we come to the word itself, uh, one of the greatest pictures or photos ever taken was of a surgery performed on a child to alleviate spina bifida. The child was still in the womb. In fact, his name was Samuel Armas. He was only 21 weeks from conception at the time of the surgery. So when the surgeon opened up the womb, he was a little startled when a little hand came out (laughs) and grabbed a hold of his finger, 21 weeks from conception. Uh, The picture, I think it made it to Time Magazine, okay? Uh, The picture is called The Hand of Hope. That was on August 19th of 1999. Uh, In the now 23-plus years since then, the best estimates still have the number of aborted children no different than Samuel at over 20 million. Are our hearts listening acutely? Soon after, uh, a certain news anchor wanted to show the picture on a major network. He was immediately censored. He was muted. Seems someone knew that a picture is worth a thousand words, daring us to go on in our own realities contrary to the self-evident truth 
about the sanctity of every human life. Well, friends, we do need to open our eyes. We do need to open our ears and pray that God would keep them that way. It really is a simple matter of practical righteousness. Right? Doing right by people revolves around the recognition that as John Stott put it, quote, human rights are at base the right to be human. To enjoy the dignity of being created in God's image and possessing in consequence unique relationships not only to God Himself, but to our fellow human beings. Seeing that God who made me in the womb also made you and putting that sight into real practice. Which brings us to our text and first to Job's righteousness. If you're unfamiliar with Job, Job is a man and a book, for what it's worth, that breaks a mold. Uh, One we're all tempted to believe, and it's that if you're suffering, you must have deserved it. You must have done something to deserve the suffering that you are experiencing. You must have done something unrighteous. But we know that Job is actually a righteous man. He's not a perfect man. He's not Jesus. But nonetheless, he is a truly righteous man. In fact, the book begins, I don't know if you know this, the book begins with God affirming Job as the most righteous man in the whole world. And to prove a point about its supernatural durability, he grants with limits a tremendous amount of personal suffering to Job. There is a plan in the suffering that God has planned for Job. But the point is that sometimes, sometimes, someone may suffer not because they are unrighteous, but why? Because they are righteous. Job's story points our own stories to the story of Jesus, ultimately. Now, we start that way to say this, that what we encounter in our text, in Job's assertion of righteousness, is not for the most part an assertion of self-righteousness. Job's simply recounting the facts so far as he can recount them, and he's recounting them this way because that's what you do when you're trying to figure out without answer why you're suffering the way you are. Perplexity sets in. You're trying to make sense of it all. Job himself has not, doesn't seem, figured out yet why such pain has been ordained for him in light of his kind of hell on earth. He looks at his life and finding the two things he thinks incompatible, he offers up his life here in these verses as a defense for why he shouldn't be suffering the way that he is. Again, it's not so that he may be justified before God, but it's that he may be vindicated as a truly justified person. Why am I suffering this way? And so what we get in our verses is a rundown of practical righteousness, of a heavenly heart lived out in the world. And I trust you felt some of these emphases as we read the passage. Uh, Job's righteousness is a respecter of three things. The one God, his own heart, and every human being. At every stop along the way, every case he's made, Job's first concern is, as one put it, what will God think? 
What will God think? I don't know if you watch The Office. I do sometimes for some comedy relief in my life. I will admit it. What Job's got going on here is somewhat of the opposite of Dwight Schrute, though perhaps there is some overlap when Dwight's criterion for doing anything is, would an idiot do that? And if they would, Dwight doesn't do that thing. Okay, uh, Friends, listen, out of the heart flow the springs of life, and at the forefront of Job's heart is glorifying the all-seeing Lord, God above. It's living not just in light of God, but in line with God, in league with God, and with the heart of God. And as we'll see, this is basic to a worldview that takes seriously the sanctity of human life. I mean, I want us to hear that the do-gooding atheist does exist. But ironically, we're to thank God for that, for only because it's His image shining forth in that person. Because it's His influence that's keeping that person from living consistently with their atheistic worldview. Whether we regard people as distinctly divine image bearers with like purpose or the evolutionary byproduct of lightning caught in a dust storm without any rhyme or reason, that should affect the way that we treat one another for better or for worse. Job lives in light of God. In the very best sense of it, Job keeps the fear of God before his eyes. And he keeps the fear of God before his heart. Again, as you move through the text, maybe you look especially at verses 7 and 9, what you're going to find is that Job's righteousness is a heart righteousness. What we see of Job, we can trust to be genuine and true. Unlike the Pharisee, Job's righteousness is not all for show. We do need to hear that it will show, it will show, but Job's show is far from a mere form of godliness. It's the real deal kind of godliness. It's the outworking of the power of God's grace in the heart of God's redeemed people. Right? We always need to be watchful here, don't we? That we're not just playing a part when we show up here. We're not just playing a part that people now expect us to play, but that we're increasingly devoted in heart to the grace and faith that God has saved us to display. One of those is cultural Christianity. The other one is the more biblical sort of Christianity. Is your righteousness more or less an act for people or is it a pact with God in the heart? Job wants his life couched in the full renovation of the heart. Is that what you and I want? Well, one way to tell is how we treat people. Dear ones, the inescapable exam of a heart that truly and thus consistently loves and fears God is an across-the-board love for people. We'll focus there in just a moment, but did you notice? Did you notice how Job vindicates his righteousness, what his righteousness involves here in the verses that we've read? 
in every biblical sense of the word, it is ultimately about treating people at base as people with a shared humanity while also taking responsibility for each one of them according to the relationship he bears toward them. The orphan is not the same thing as his wife and vice versa, but they are both human beings. And so when we talk about the sanctity of human life, we do need to be mindful that we are talking about more than speaking up and acting out for the unborn. More than that. Not less than that, but more than that. In Job, the sanctity of human life includes, if you look at verses 1 to 4, steering clear of lusting over younger women, guys. Holding to their dignity as human beings should cancel out lusty gazes, whether in person or on some electronic device. Husbands, the sanctity of human life includes... You look at verses 9 to 12, collecting all of your romantic desire for your wife. It does not matter if she has been recently unhelpful for your soul as Job's wife had been. Recent sins do not cancel out her abiding dignity. More, if you look at verses 5 through 8, the sanctity of human life includes not only sexual purity, but personal, I might even say vocational integrity. In the cutthroat world of business where others keep a hand out and are steadily looking to get ahead, Job is a model of truth and honesty and contentment. His heart, if you look at verse 7, does not go after his eyes. You can trust Job to do what's right by men and women and children because he trusts God, because he understands that they are all his equal. He treats each one of them equitably. And more than equitably, he treats them generously, even counterculturally. Before we hunker down in verse 15, we can go ahead and say in verses 13 and 14 that Job acknowledged human rights to servants, we might even say slaves, that others of his ilk and power and society and whatnot would never have acknowledged. But Job does. And then seeing the final dash in verses 16 through the rest of the chapter, how Job also provided for, here's the list, the poor. He attended to the widow. He fathered the orphan. He fed the hungry. He clothed the destitute. You see all that? That was Job's constant way of life. Out of his love for God, Job unflinchingly and unfailingly loved people. And all of it falls under the banner of righteousness in service of the sanctity of human life. And so let's come now to verses 13 and 15 and this chief principle behind Job's realized humanity, acted out humanity. The case he brings up here is about how he's handled the criticism. You think about how you might handle criticism, how I might handle criticism. It's about he's handled criticism from his own servants and why he has handled it the way that he has. So let's just start here with the why and then we'll work our way out. If you look at verse 15... Job writes something that is truly, again, stunning, 
countercultural, what have you, because it's something that's rooted in Scripture and something rooted in Scripture, this is Genesis 1 to be specific, will always be among uh, the peoples of this world, something that is countercultural, unexpected, something that they don't typically do. So what does he say there in verse 15? He says, did not he who made me in the womb make him? Talking about his servants. And did not one, talking about God, fashion us, the both of us, in the womb? In other words, Job is arguing that his servants have a right to righteous treatment. And even, if need be, to bring a charge against their superior because in essence... Job is not their superior. Job has a heart open to equity at cost to himself because his servants are no more or less human than he himself is. Job and his servants, Job and his wife, Job and all the women of his culture, Job and the poor, Job and the widow, Job and the orphan, Job and the hungry, Job and the destitute. We are all wonderfully made and fashioned by God as human beings with an equal dignity, value, and set of rights. Circumstances notwithstanding, as such, we share an inviolable sanctity. Job was not what he was. He was not what he became in the world in the womb. And neither were his servants. What they were and are both are divine image bearers which no existence in this world, whatever is added to us or taken away from us, however different they may be, can ever strip away. Beloved, let's pay close attention here. Our personhood, dignity, and worth is not something that we accumulate over time in this world. It's something we are all afforded by God from conception in the womb. Doesn't matter what our station in life is. Doesn't matter what kind of money we make. The clothes we wear, the rep we bear. Conception establishes an irrevocable right to be treated justly as co-equal human beings who are answerable to God for how we treat one another. As one put it, our common humanity as God's creatures levels or rather elevates all of us. And what we need to clarify now is that according to Job, who's inspired by God the Holy Spirit here, that common humanity that we share is obviously inclusive of those humans, those people who are in the womb. As a former doctor at the largest abortion clinic in the Western Hemisphere once said after discovering the ultrasound, quote, modern technology has convinced us beyond question that the preborn child is simply another member of the human community, indistinguishable from us, 
in every way. Still, knowing that, I read just this past Thursday on the great news outlet called Twitter that the leading cause of death in America is what? Abortion. Accounting for 2,500 deaths every day in the United States of America alone. We have a word for that. It's called infanticide. And so if we claim to know the God of Job, and if we claim to have the heart of Job, it's incumbent upon us to use as Job what strength and resources we have to alleviate this tragedy on all sides. What have we done lately for those who cannot defend themselves? Who who can't speak for themselves? Who are the weakest and most vulnerable members of our society? Or are their silent screams, as they're called, just white noise to us? What we want to do now is just elevate their voice for a moment. We want to build a case from Job for doing righteously by the unborn human being. And I'll just make several cases here, starting with the issue of personhood. Personhood. If you look at verse 15 again, I want you to notice that Job understands himself and his servants to have existed as human persons, not just at the point of birth, but already in the womb. Did you see that? Did not he, God, who made you say, me, Job, make him the servant in the womb, and did not one fashion us in the womb. And so apparently, traveling seven inches down the birth canal is not what transformed them into the human beings that they were. Job in the world was Job in the womb. As he rightly sees it, there is a continuum of personhood that begins at conception. And that's not just scriptural, if you will, it is also scientific. We know that our human code is unique and complete at conception so that what we have in the womb from the word go is not products of conception is not potential human life, but actual human life. A human being. And in fact, this has been presented at the U.S. judiciary level to say that our laws, the laws of our land, which are to protect human life, ought to be based upon data that proves that what's being aborted is a human person. Equal in dignity, value, and rights to the mother who is carrying that child. It's long been the formula for heads of systemic injustice to justify their actions by downgrading the people they're assaulting to the status of non-people. Non-people. 
And most people, I think, are rightly nauseated by the historical examples we have of this, like, say, the Holocaust. And yet, since 1973, the number of children that have been ended by abortion in the United States is six times the death toll of Auschwitz. And what's perhaps the even more grievous thing is that we're not even ignorant anymore about the status of those in the womb. We're not ignorant anymore about that. We know that the Ellie, back there, that Zach and Caroline now hold in their arms, was no less a human being six weeks ago or at any point in Caroline's womb. We know that. Yet, in our national wickedness, we just go on to celebrate and champion their deaths as a social good or a just cause or a marketing campaign to numb our collective consciences. I want to urge us as a church to refuse to be so numbed. I want us to feel again by the facts of the matter. We know, we know that at six weeks from conception, the child already has a beating heart, blood flow, bodily limbs, brain waves, a mouth, a nose, and ears, with a musculoskeletal system in place, as well as organ control. But we also know that the earliest abortions take place after six weeks. We also know that by week 12, by the powerful, wonderful working of God, the child has all the internal organs of an adult, as well as identifying fingerprints, and has begun to suck their thumb, squint, swallow, frown, smile, do somersaults, backflips, and scissor kicks, and that from this point, with still six months left until they're born, nothing, nothing, nothing new develops or begins functioning. The child only grows from there on out. And yet, by law, not just a pregnancy, but a person can be aborted at any point for virtually any reason up to birth. That's nine months. And in some states, if the child somehow survives the attempted abortion, they can actually then be finished off after being delivered outside the womb at the agreement of the mother and the doctor. Don't be numb. Feel the travesty of what's being done all around us to the weakest and neediest people in our human society. The unborn child. Which from Job brings us to the issue of true, listen now, true and consistent righteousness. Living in accord with a biblical worldview. 
Okay? Though it should help to be a Christian, I don't think you have to be a Christian to favor and act upon what's most right on this matter. But, we can tend to be inconsistent in the application of justice. Sin has sadly activated in us a kind of moral schizophrenia when it comes to doing the common good. That's why we have classes on ethics. Because being ethical is something that certainly without Christ we unlearn as we grow into the values that come to shape and dominate our souls. But I want you to see here, Job labored that nothing of what he became in the world could move him off of his mark, could move him off of his devotion under God to the sanctity of every human being and life. Job stayed consistently righteous. But in our society, it's illegal to destroy the egg of an eagle. But lawful to destroy that of a human. That's inconsistent. In most states, if a child in utero, a child in the womb, if they die in a car accident, it's called fetal homicide. Homicide. But if the same child were aborted, it's not homicide. What makes the difference? Nothing except the desire of the mother. Only, that is, if the child is wanted. That's it. So, abortion advocates try to cloak the dagger by gumming up about not wanting unwanted children. But, we know, as of a few years ago, the National Council of Adoption reports that there are, quote, hundreds of thousands of families wanting and waiting to adopt them. to get super sensitive here. What about the life of a mother? I want to say that we certainly care about that too, and deeply so. The hard question is, are we actually talking about the life of the mother, the life of the mother, or her and or the father's preferred lifestyle? You see, we have to learn to weigh. We have to learn to weigh not just what might be acceptably right, but usually, as I said, what is most right, most just in any given case. So I just want us to sit on an actual principle of justice. It's a real thing. I'm not just making it up. An actual principle of justice that when two legitimate rights conflict, two legitimate rights conflict, the limitation of those rights that does the least harm is the most just. In other words, ask yourself, what is most just? 
most just? What does the least harm to all the people involved in a situation like this? Legislating nine months from a mother that ends in the life and adoption of her child or legislating the child lose their life for the sake of their mother's preferred life. We should care for women. We absolutely should defend the sanctity of every female life. I can't urge that upon us enough. I could not agree more with it, and neither could Job. You see throughout our passage that he has an ardent and urgent care for his wife, for widows and all these things. He cares for them. We should too. The problem is, the problem is, what about all the women in the womb? As they are people too, why don't they count? Again, facts, just so you have them. Unborn girls are aborted at higher rates than unborn boys. We know from the stats that abortion is disproportionately eliminating minorities. It is disproportionately eliminating the poor. It is also disproportionately eliminating women from the earth. The infanticide around us involves gender side. In the last 50 years, just so you have it, globally, the world has sacrificed 163 million girls to the abortion industry simply because they were girls. And how much documentation do we have to have linking abortion to breast cancer, uterine damage, sterilization, depression, guilt, shame, in some cases even death, before our sense of what's actually best for all women, the most women across the board, kicks in. And yet abortion advocates are shaming women, shaming women, even if the women are pro-choice, but have a conscience on the issue. No shame allowed. We need to lead the way in exercising a true and consistent righteousness concerning the sanctity of human life. And so, as with Job, we simply can't allow our situations in life to begin to govern our love and our care for people more than, over than, uh, the, the plain testimony of God in Scripture. I want you to hear this, that bottom line, bottom line, over 93% of all abortions are performed on healthy mothers with healthy babies conceived consensually more than 99% of the time. So why are they being performed? Why are these children being put to the death? It's very simple. More guilt-free sex. More money. More power and control. 
the absence, really to our shame, of a public and godly conscience, graciously but boldly in action. Job is the model for us. Dear ones, Job had all the things that could serve to callous the heart to other people. He was Elon Musk before Elon Musk ever thought to exist. He had loads of money. I don't know if anyone was richer than Job. He was of high position in his community. He was a leader in his society. He had prestige. Job had a gigantic reputation. He also had a massive family to prioritize and to care for. He had almost unrivaled power at his disposal. And none of that enticed him to treat other people in any way other than how God would have him do it. The exact opposite. He leveraged all of who he was. He leveraged all that God had given him for the truest good of the most people. But against that example, we know abortion is an industry. We know that we have created a market for it. We know, for instance, that when some labs can obtain adequate cells for biomedical research from consenting adults or from umbilical cord blood or from placentas, they still go after embryonic stem cells. Why? Because they pay for it. And so it's done. More, it's known that so-called family planners push abortion and not adoption. So that, as of 2013, the ratio of unborn children aborted to adopted is 1,000 to 15. Why is that? It's because there's no money to be made for the family planners in adoption. In essence, we've sacrificed babies on the altar of convenience. What's best for us instead of what's right by them to God? A final and briefer idea then that I think we have to take from Job concerns the reality of suffering. Okay? It's one of the more common justifications for abortion that we just don't want to bring a child into this crazy world. We want to spare them trials. And so what do we do? We take their life. Friends, next to Jesus, I'm not sure there's a person that suffered as much as Job, maybe Paul. But there aren't many that have suffered as much as Job did, but his story proves some things that we need to consider about this. First, in our text, Job, we should know, is at the height of his suffering. We're in Job 31. He's at the height of his suffering, and he still maintains his view of the sanctity of every human life. Next, we know that in the end, his suffering is shown to have had a divine, a good, a maturing purpose in his life, a revelatory purpose in his life. 
So we get it, right? We, we, we may not like suffering in the moment, but when we view suffering rightly, biblically, it can hold a critical place in our salvation and in our growth into godly human beings. Like Job. And one more thing then, and it's that God brings Job through suffering to a place of blessing in the end. Job's suffering is not all there is in the story. There is finally deliverance. The reality of suffering is finally no excuse for taking a life that suffering typically tends to help when viewed rightly. Now friend, maybe you're unbelieving this morning. Maybe not. Either way, I'm aware that our theme today, it can produce some guilt and shame. So I want you to hear this. With an eternal view of His suffering, God still sent His Son through a womb into this world to die for us on the cross, to forgive us of all of our sins, and present us before God as righteous and fit for His eternal life. And so if you are unbelieving, let me just press upon you the urgency of trusting in Jesus today and coming to faith in Him and being saved from your sins. If you're believing, but maybe trembling with some guilt this morning, I just would have you take heart in what you've believed. Take heart in the gospel. Take heart in the fullness of the grace of Jesus towards you. And then by His grace, let's begin to live together as righteous Job lived. If you look toward the end of our text, he calls down a curse upon himself if ever he should fail to utilize his strength in the service of the sanctity of human life. Do you see verse 22? He says, Oh Lord, if I fail in this, Let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. Talk about a word picture that should be worth a thousand words and deeds for the sanctity of human life. How might you and I act strongly today for children in the womb? Will you give to the pregnancy center? We have some baby bottles back there. Utilize those. Will you volunteer to counsel anxious mothers that show up at the pregnancy center? I can train you in that. Will you pray to adopt children or foster children? Will you write, if you're gifted at writing, would you write a state leader when some kind of bill comes up on the docket concerning these things. Will you help us create a culture here in the church that makes abortion clinics completely unnecessary (laughs) because women are able to come in here and find spiritual moms and dads who will adopt them and bring them into their home and give them whatever they need give them a much better option than walking to that clinic. 
Will you lead hearts to the gospel? More people knowing Jesus will absolutely help more of those in the womb today. Again, the picture of little Samuel Armas is called the hand of hope. And in the matter of the sanctity of every human life, I would just urge us by the word of God this morning to honor that, to honor that by being hands of hope to the unborn little ones just like him. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We do pray now that you would bring it with full power, compassion, and grace upon every soul. Oh Lord, change us. Make us a people who really are salt and light in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.